Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Raoul Powell, CEO and co-founder of Real Vision. Alongside brilliant minds like Edward Snowden, Benedict Evans and Balaji, I'll be on stage exploring the extraordinary potential of AI and the profound change it represents, not just for financial markets, but also for the world as we know it. With over 5,000 attendees and over 150 side events, Singapore will become a vibrant hub for a full week from the 3rd to the 9th of June. Visit superai.com to register and join me with 20% off tickets with the code REALVISION. Link in the description. Thanks. Hey, visionaries. Brent Donnelly is a fan favorite in the Real Vision community, and we often hear, how can I get more Brent? AMFX is his must-read daily macro letter. It helps you surf the macro narrative and puts new themes on your radar. Right now, Brent is offering a special for RV members ahead of the official launch of the RV Marketplace this week. Check it out at realvision.com forward slash Brent and use the code RV100 for a major $100 discount. Will the BOJ change course? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Brent Donnelly, president of Spectra Markets. Hey there, Brent. Hey, Maggie. Good to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. And uh, before we even get going, so our regular viewers know that your daily note, AMFX, is one of my must-reads every day. I'm always quoting you or quoting things that you mentioned in your note. Um, and for me, it's not only super smart market analysis, but I always tell you this. It has all that extra sort of learning and just it's just a pleasure and so much fun to read. And drum roll. Starting next week, you are going to be part of the RV Marketplace, which I just I found am. out about and I am super excited about. So welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, I've always had a good relationship with RV. So, uh, you know, happy to be here and happy to to share share the love. That's awesome. Well, we're super excited about it. So to head over uh, to find out how you can subscribe and get a discount, head over to realvision.com forward slash Brent. I love you have your own URL and you can use the code RV100 for a special discount and tune in tomorrow, Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern. Raul and Samuel are going to be doing a live town hall to answer any questions or give a lot more information about um, the marketplace and how it's rolling out. So put that on your calendar as well. All right. So we were just chatting before we came on about whether anybody's like, if people are mentally checking out, um, it's been such a wild year. We're kind of getting into the end of it, but the BOJ is still, still lingers, still out there. It's one of the last big events this year. How are you feeling about it? Um, we should get, hear something right in the next, uh, next few hours. What, what do you think? Are we likely to see a change in policy? Yeah. So the last time they met, we had the leak beforehand, which came about noon New York time. So we're well past that now. So it looks like there's not going to be a leak, which is nice. Um, it's been really interesting. So the last week we had so many central bank meetings, um, including the Fed and the ECB. And obviously many of the central banks 
are turning towards cutting. And that's the dominant theme now globally from EM all the way to the Fed and ECB. You know, we've got cuts priced in. But then you had the Norges Bank hiked, and then you are now in a position where the Bank of Japan could hike. And it's funny because they couldn't be more radically different situations, um, Japan and Norway. But the thing that I will say about the BOJ is just that they're so late to the party and that the increments that they're moving in are so small. So for YCC, the, the yield curve control program that they were doing, they were straddling the 10-year rate. And then there's some argument that that could have an impact on global bond markets because when you release the, the top side for yields in one country, that is going to have an impact in other countries. But when you move the policy rate in Japan, I'm kind of skeptical as to how important that really is. So mm. I think they're going to move it probably in January, not at this meeting. Um, there's basically nothing priced for this meeting. And then April is about 40 or sorry, January or January's about 40%. And then April's kind of a hundred percent. So somewhere between now and April, they're expected to hike. But the thing is they're going from minus 0.1 to zero. So if you look at what drives you know, the currency, what drives dollar yen, euro yen, all the crosses, and then what drives global rates, you know, the BOJ going from minus 0.1 to zero to me is just such a tiny blip on the radar. And then we also have a lot of um, sort of empirical data that shows that these BOJ moves aren't really that critical. Like in 2016, they went negative, which was like a huge deal. Everyone was freaking out. And that should have been very bad for the yen. And the yen went straight up like for two years after that. So the reason simply is that if you if the main driver of dollar yen, which has always been the case since I started in 1995, has always been the path of global yields. So if global yields are going up, Japanese investors are looking for higher yields and they put their money abroad and they'll buy like in 2007, it was New Zealand and Australia. Now it's the US or Mexico. But the, the Japanese, as the biggest pool of savings, will send their money abroad when yields are high and when yields are low, they bring the money back and it all happens at the margin. So whether the BOJ policy rate is minus 0.1 or zero doesn't really matter. What matters is what the Fed does, what the ECB does, what the RBA do, or what the Banksico does, because it's really those foreign rates that are going you know, in clips of 25 basis points or in the US case, we were, we were hiking 50 and 75 over and over. Those yield moves are just so gigantic compared to what the BOJ is doing. That And the evidence shows that basically the BOJ matters on the day, and then you just go back to watching the global yields. That's so interesting. And it's a really important distinction. So one question on that, I think, mm -hmm. is can the BOJ slowly move away from yield curve control or do they, do they lose control of it? I mean, that, that's sort of been um, an outlier word. Now people will say the BOJ has an enormous amount of ammunition. So, um, and they are a central bank that is still very used to intervening in markets. So, but, but still, you know, there is that uh, also that history of when central banks say they have lines in the sand and they're only going to try to keep things in a rage that the market just keeps testing them until they blow it out. Yeah. So the thing with the BOJ now is that their cap isn't really close to where the market is anymore. So the cap I think is at a hundred and the, and last time I looked, the swaps were at 70 or something. So they were capping it and it was a real cap, but now it's, unless yields go up significantly, which mostly they're going down now around the world, mm -hmm. the cap is no longer really being threatened. 
I think the idea that the BOJ could be broken um, isn't really in the market's mind anymore. Just like they have a lot of credibility. But then again, you just never know. I think in a world where yields are skyrocketing, um, essentially anything could happen in theory. But in a world where yields are kind of stable and volatility is lower, which is the world we're in now, I think that possibility is just dramatically reduced. So then you're really talking about like what are global yields doing relative to Japan and what are Japanese savers doing? And when yields are coming off globally, savers are going to bring money home and that should put upward pressure on the yen. So even though I'm kind of skeptical of the importance of the BOJ, we're actually in a regime now where the yen should appreciate simply because global yields are going down. Do you, do you have a target for the yen? What do you, where do you think it could get to? Well, it, I think if tens go to 325, which I think is, re, is realistic, like that's like ambitious, but possible. Um, you could get dollar yen back at 130 or 135, um, which is, you know, eight, eight, seven, eight percent from here. Um, we've, we've topped out now a bunch of times around 150. So it feels like a very asymmetric trade. Um, because if you're short dollar yen, you kind of have like the momentum of the fed on your side, you have the momentum of the BOJ on your side, you have the ministry of finance on your side because they've been intervening above 150. But the big problem is that it, the carry is very expensive. So when you're long yen, you're long a currency with zero rates and you're short whatever you're going to be short. If you're short the dollar, then you're short at 4%. So it costs a lot of money to be short dollar yen. So you need to, you know, the bar is fairly high. You need a decent move. And then that's really why it's been a widow maker this year, because every time the BOJ uh, changes the yield curve cap, it looks like it should open the door to be short dollar yen. But then people after about two weeks of being short are like, okay, this is costing me too much money. I got to get out. And then dollar yen just rips back up to the highs. Um, however, if if U.S. yields are going down this year or in 2024, then maybe it'll finally work. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. That is the big question, right? So we had Goolsby. I should mention, by the way, Japan really is the kind of the the, the making headlines on, on a period where we are getting quieter because there was a steel deal, right? Nippon was made an right. offer for U.S. steel, which is sort of interesting because we haven't seen yeah. something like that in a while. Um, but Goolsby uh, came out, became the latest Fed member to kind of come out and question the market reaction. But investors seem to be ignoring absolutely any attempt to walk back the dovish messaging um, and reaction uh, to the Fed meeting last week. I mean, we still saw, we still see it kind of you know, impacting the markets. So do you expect, do you think that this, the, the markets betting on the rate cuts seems um, accurate right now? How are you feeling about the interest rate trajectory in the U.S.? So to me, it makes sense. So my kind of base case for a long time has been something that looks more like a soft landing. Like people say that there's no such thing as a soft landing, but there is. I mean, it's happened before. It's rare and it's hard to execute, but it's possible. And if the majority of the inflation that we saw was caused by supply chains and by massive fiscal stimulus, then maybe monetary policy is a little bit of a red herring. And now inflation is just coming back down because supply chains are fine and fiscal is a little bit less crazy. Uh, the problem that the Fed has is that they've layered on so many 
different types of communication over the years. Um, and they never take anything back. So like, it's kind of similar to taxes or like service charges or traffic lights. Once you put them in, you never take them out. But that doesn't mean that they all those traffic lights are always going to be a good idea if population changes or whatever. So the Fed keeps adding all these new communication tools. And the point of forward guidance and the dots was essentially to reinforce quantitative easing and say, like, we're not going to hike for a long time. So you can believe in our in our QE. But now we're well past that. And the dots are saying, you know, the dots came out showing three cuts in 2024. So on, on the one hand, the Fed's saying, hey, we're not talking about cuts, but they are talking about cuts because you're forced to decide when you submit your dot, are you going to put, you know, one hike or three, three cuts? And the median was three cuts. So, so they, they have a communication problem because no matter what they say about what they're thinking right now, the dots reveal something and the trajectory of inflation reels, reveals something. And so the model, I think, that makes the most sense is you look at where real rates are and real rates are pretty high. Like, you know, the Fed has hiked a lot and inflation has come down a lot. And as much as I know many people will never believe this, it is possible for the Fed to cut in an environment that's not apocalyptic. Like they can cut rates a couple of times to get back to real rates of one and a half percent and the jobs market could still be 3.8%. So the really interesting thing now though, this is not my base case, but I think like I always think of, as you know, in, in terms of like, what's the base case and then what are some other, you know, reasonable and realistic things. And the really interesting case now is if the data actually heats up in Q1, because a lot of times we have seen that like more in the February, the, the January data, which is released in February, um, you get really hot data and then everyone's like, whoa, what's going on here? And when you have a Fed saying one thing and the whole market's just calling BS on what, what the Fed's like, what the Fed has been trying to say in the last few days, and then the data gets strong then the market's going to be in a really awkward position. So I, I'm keeping that on my bingo card, which is just like reacceleration in January. And everyone kind of goes, holy crap, this is like the way we got to 5% in yields was an overshoot and maybe 3.9 is an overshoot. I think bigger picture, the inflation data is more important. And my base case is we're going back to like 2012 to 2019 was low inflation, okay growth, higher stock market, pretty good for bonds. Um, secular stagnation was what they called it at that time. And if you imagine something like that, but a little bit less bad than that, because that was pretty bad in terms of like growth and inflation mm. were very low. So if you imagine like there's been some flow through from wage growth to in, inflation psychology and things like that. But then in the end, technology and demographics are mostly what drives inflation. And then you had a supply shock and the supply shock's over. So my base case is we just kind of grind back down and we get some rate cuts. Um, but the really exciting thing would be is if things just take off in Q1, I mean, people will lose their minds. Yeah. And it would be the pattern we've seen, right? Because everyone mm. anticipates the weakness, the recession, the pivot. And that we heard everybody saying that it's a pivot party. Everybody's welcome. Right? That was the that was the headline. I forget who said it, but um, last week that everyone grabbed onto. 
and then you get this violent move again in bonds, if that's the case. I think what's interesting is so many of you that have been coming on Real Vision, um, and it makes sense because you, a lot of you will hold a shorter term tactical framework as well as your larger macro framework because you're always mm -hmm. kind of retesting your, your thesis or looking for the probabilities that may have switched. Quite a few of you are nervous about this, this sort of whiplash, this potential for things to still run hotter. Um, and then the market kind of had to rethink the timing anyway of the rate cuts. And maybe that's where the question mark is. It's not whether they'll eventually cut next week, but how quickly they do that. Right. Um, I mean, that's the thing is the bar to hike is just so high now that uh, I don't think that's or hike. No, no, to hike. hike right. So I don't think that's really like that's barely even in the playbook anymore. Um, like even if the even if the data picks up, they're already in restrictive territory. They they will probably still won't hike. Um, and the bar to cut is extremely low. So that's kind of the starting point. But then now, because pricing has moved so much, even if they didn't do anything, that's a big rejection of of the pricing. And that could take, you know, 10-year yields back to 440 or something like that. So that's an interesting scenario to watch for. But like I said, my base case is just that we're going back down to like basically target inflation simply because the shocks are over. And yeah, it takes a long time for that stuff to get out of the system, but it's it's working its way out. Uh, by the way, Paul in the chat said he has purchased one of your 24 trader handbooks and almanacs, and he nice. is really finding it nice and useful and enjoys Thanks, it. Thank Paul. you for that comment, Paul. Um, so, so, you know, it's funny in terms of sentiment as well, Brent, because so many people got killed on the bond trade that reversed. Um, you know, as to what we were just talking about, sort of anticipating that change, yields moving lower, and then snapping back quite violently when it seemed like the economy is stronger. And even Powell talked about that, that everyone got the U.S. economy wrong in mm -hmm. this year, right? I mean, they were just surprised by how strong it stayed in the face of all the rate cuts and that lag between the fiscal and monetary was problematic. Sentiment-wise, it seems like people are kind of like, thinking we came too far too fast. Christopher in the chat saying the market's finally acting tired today. Um, negative advance decline line, even as the, on the NYSE, even as the S&P printed a new high for the year, he kind of thinks a slap is coming, even though from a higher level. Um, Christopher, thank you for your contributions. Always giving us some good feel for the market. By the way, Christopher's, Christopher's piece with Roger is hitting the platform. I don't know if it's on yet. I have to go look for it. Um, but uh, Christopher is a longtime trader and had a really fun conversation with Roger Hur. So everybody check that out. Give it a thumbs up. Pile in on the comments. Let's show some love. Um, but anyway, how do you feeling, Brent, about sentiment? Is everyone just sort of scarred from that volatility last year and, and thinking that maybe things ran up too far too fast? So yeah, I have to split it into a few things. So in macro, people are tired. Um, returns were okay, but not amazing this year. A lot of people got hurt in March on Silvergate. Um, we've had a lot of themes this year in macro, like going from recession to higher for longer, banking crisis, uh, China reopening, yay, China reopening, boo. <laughs> there are so <laughs> many themes this year. And generally in macro, the way people make money is identifying themes early and riding them. So there was no riding to be had that, you know, this year it was all mean reversion. And the things that worked well this year were like 
carry and seasonality and positioning. Those are the three factors that kind of worked in macro, but like having your macro thesis and writing it didn't work. So, and that's what most people do. So in macro, people are tired and they're very light. Mm -hmm. um, in equities, I would agree with Chris that there's nobody's left that's bearish. I mean, the, every single indicator in terms of like the, the percentage of like the tech, tech, mega tech ownership at 99% in Goldman's prime data, all the way across the board to like CNN's greed and fears at max greed or whatever. Um, but then at this time of year, who's going to sell? Like nobody's really going to be around to sell. So I, I would just defer to the seasonality until the new year. And then again, I think that the thing that would really turn things quickly would be any kind of whiff of strength, mm -hmm. especially when people have the Pavlovian uh, what, or PTSD or whatever you want to call it from like multiple reaccelerations that always, it always looked like it was turning. And really there's, there's no like strong evidence that the, that things are bad in the U S it, this is one thing that I think has been interesting this year is if you look at the workhorse data that like, you know, if you looked at a textbook from 1997 and it said, what are the economic data points that you watch? And you, you look now, there's still the same basic data points. It's initial claims, non-farm payrolls, GDP, retail sales, um, industrial production, like the, the main workhorse numbers are all pretty good still like unemployment's three, seven claims is at the lows. Basically everything's pretty good. Um, Atlanta feds 2.6 or something, but then the sort of blessing and the curse of being alive in 2023 as an economist is that there's just so much access to so many data points and so many, you know, different ways of slicing and dicing existing data points that someone will always be able to find a some weak data series that like, you know, in terms of credit card delinquencies or whatever, like, you know, things that are legit, but if you have a thousand streams of data, there's always going to, you can't expect 1000 out of 1000 to be strong. But then the other thing is people will also slice and dice the jobs data to find the negative. Like they'll look at the household survey, which mm -hmm. is a really bad survey. That's just like non-farm payrolls, but three times more volatile, like all noise, no signal. So I think that's been one of the things that's happened this year is there's been enough kind of like whiffs of weakness around that it's always, there's always been a credible way of saying like some economic weakness is coming. But to me, it just seems easier to wait for like the main data points to turn and they just haven't turned still. So that could be really interesting going into, if you go into January with basically market max long stocks, max long crypto or close and then pretty long bonds. I, I feel like bonds is one of the hardest ones to judge positioning mm. because there's just a lot of real money in, in bonds. Like, you know, people are actually buying bonds because they want the return. You know, my mom's putting her bank balances into bonds because or into GICs or whatever because she wants a return. So it's not like, it, it's not as speculative to me. A lot of it is just more like 5% or 4% yields are going to attract money. Yeah. Um, but going into the new year, I think that everything will be pretty sensitive to, to any strength in the data. But then on the other side of the ledger, and this is why I think it's just a lot more important to watch the data than to listen to the Fed, is that if the data weakens, the market's just going to run with it. And, and you know, two rate cuts in Q1 will turn into four. And then if you get anything closely resembling a recession, then you get the strip where you can start pricing fifties and 75s, which means you can price basically anything into the curve. So 
I feel like there's, there's a lot of elasticity both ways. Um, and to me, that means follow the data and the, the fed, like what they're saying, like, okay, the dots are there, but if the economy is strong, then the dots aren't going to be ratified. They're not going to, yeah, cut they'll us. just change so, it. I mean, we know that, right. That's why yeah. they reissue them all the time, which is yeah. funny, but I, I guess the point is to try to give the, give us a peek into where they are at that moment. Sure. And, you know, try to, but, but, but I know what you mean. And great, great point about all the information out there. I mean, you see the wars on Twitter, right? I mean, people have their narrative or their leanings and they can find stuff to support that if they want. So you're right. You want to try to like step back and, and really kind of look at it all. Um, Ralph has a question. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, it's tricky. Ralph has a question. uh, Does Brent see an over, Overaction, I think maybe overreaction to the downside in Dixie and a possible reversal. Yeah. So the tricky thing with the dollar is that the window for where it performs poorly is so narrow that it's so hard to make money being short dollars these days. Mm. What you really need for the dollar to, to go down in a meaningful way is some kind of rebound in Germany and China, like a, a global manufacturing cycle, which some people are predicting a little bit of a turn up in the global manufacturing cycle, because otherwise it's just the, like the issue that you keep running into specifically with Euro is that, okay, say people want to be short dollars because they, the dots were three cuts. And so you just go short dollars against whatever. And the dollar index, the Dixie is like 57% Euro. And if you include Swiss and Sweden, it's like 70% Euro basically. So people buy Euros and it goes up and then they sit there and they go, okay, so why am I long Euros again? Like PMIs are at 42. Yeah. Uh, everything they export to China is not selling. Um, like the ECB is going to probably be the first one to cut. So it's really hard to find good trades on the other side, um, except for carry. So like people buy Mexico and Brazil just simply for the carry. But if you're looking at like relative economic performance is ideally what you want, where U.S. is kind of slowing into the secular stagnation that I was describing that we experienced from 12 to 19. But then other countries are doing okay. Like Australia is exporting to China. China is doing all right. And with China in a balance sheet recession and Europe, um, like, I don't know, on the edge of recession and, and their inflation is going down a lot faster. It just always feels like dollar down is like a rental and never something you want to own, uh, other than in, in carry. So I'm, I'm much more tactical. Like I feel like generally people are way more sent or way more sympathetic to dollar down just because of where it is. Like the dollar has gone up a lot, um, because of the deficits, which may or may not ever be relevant. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. And then because of the fed, so then you have to have a situation though, where either the Fed's cutting faster than everyone else, but we're not in a global recession because global recession is also dollar positive, uh, or other countries aren't cutting as much as, as we thought because the global manufacturing cycle kind of bottomed. And so as much as I want to be bearish dollar, I just always find that like, I'll be short dollars for four days or for two weeks. And then I, I tend to get out because it's just so hard to sustain it um, until you get something good from Germany and China. And then you probably see a real, a, a real dollar down trade. 
We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Hi, I'm Raoul Powell, CEO and co-founder of Real Vision. Alongside brilliant minds like Edward Snowden, Benedict Evans and Balaji, I'll be on stage exploring the extraordinary potential of AI and the profound change it represents, not just for financial markets, but also for the world as we know it. With over 5,000 attendees and over 150 side events, Singapore will become a vibrant hub for a full week from the 3rd to the 9th of June. Visit superai.com to register and join me with 20% off tickets with the code REALVISION. Link in the description. Thanks. I love that that concept of renting the dollar short because it, <laughs> it's so true. It's like all comes back to it. By the way, um, Brian just did a quickie poll and we were kind of even Stephen, but a little bit more if you were bearish. 54% of you were bearish who are listening. Um, 46 were bullish. Um, so maybe a couple other people kind of sniffing that out, Brent, that it's a little hard to go all in on the bearish dollar. Um, so John asking on the technical side, I don't know if you're looking at this, but do you think the January 2022 all-time high for the NASDAQ S&P 500 Dow will turn into resistance earlier in the new year? How are you thinking about stocks? I think so, because I feel like I'm always a big fan at the turn of any session. So like the turn of the month, um, the turn of the week, the turn of the year, especially like we saw last year that trends just very often lose their mojo because I was a market maker up like for 20, 25 years or whatever. I don't know, some amount of years, 22. Um, And you see that a lot of the flows that come through the desk are timed to begin or end at the start or the end of the year or the month, simply because like if someone's doing a big rebalancing out of whatever, out of euros and into dollars, it just generally makes sense for them to complete it by the end of of the period um, for whatever accounting and and just like sort of common sense reasons. And like last year, you saw the forced liquidation in tech at the end of the year. Um, and so like the turn of the year was the turn. So I'm a big fan of, of when you're trying to fade major trends um, of using the calendar. And I think so. I think this will be an opportunity to do that. And the other thing I'm a fan of is doing trades with pretty limited um, or, or pretty clear exits. So like, I hate just selling S and P's cause I'm bearish, like for whatever reason, mid range, and then riding it 250 points up. Cause I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, what I'd much rather do is like, see you got the turn of the year. Um, you have extremely bullish sentiment, everyone on one side of the boat kind of thing. And then ideally maybe you get a little bit of strong data and that's your catalyst in January and then go short with a stop above the all time high. And then then you know you're playing the double top and you can probably get pretty good leverage as well because that's the other thing from a trading point of view there's always the tension between how big's your position going to be and how tight's your stop going to be so the tighter your stop the bigger the position can be notional wise risking the same percentage of capital so i always like those kind of trades like i'm i'm looking over at the chart now um where you're, you have a really clear exit point and you just say, but then I think the critical thing is if it breaches that point, you just say, okay, I was wrong. And mm-hmm. I'm going to wait for, you know, new inspiration. I'm not going to like smash my head against the keyboard three more times. That, that That's really, really fantastic advice. And I hope everybody was really 
um, thinking about that because that's how you can protect yourself. That's how you live to fight another day. Um, if you haven't had a chance, uh, I did a session with Denise and two of our community members last week, and it was about this very kind of thing, not only having a plan, but then understanding how you're feeling because you will be feeling something. You can't take it out of the equation. You have to understand how it works in the equation. She's a master at explaining that. It was really, really good. And I think will really help um, everybody as you kind of reset for 24. So I encourage you to go check that out. We are basically out of time, but want to squeeze one really quick one in uh, because both Lena and who else was asking about this? Uh, is this it? Both asking about Canada. Oh, Canada. So uh, is this it? Wanting to know if a soft landing for Canada is possible. Lena asking, will we ever see the Canadian dollar stronger than the U.S. dollar like before 2013? Um, so I don't believe so. So one of the interesting things about Canada has been that it hasn't really been tracking oil. So when oil went up, it Canada didn't appreciate. And then all the metrics that Canada, if you compare Canada to the US in terms of like household debt, real estate, uh, re leverage in the real estate market, like essentially the US delevered in 08 and Canada still hasn't delevered. Mm. So the thing that's been supporting Canada has been massive population growth. But I think at some point, and I think we're getting close to that point where there was like technical recession already. And then you now are going to have about 25, 30% of mortgages resetting in 24. Um, I think the pressure is going to start to build. So I think Canada is going to underperform um, economically, but also I think the currency will simply because if the shit hits the fan in the US, which is not my call, but if it does, it will be much worse in Canada. And if the US kind of muddles through, Canada could stay in this technical recession where like jobs growth isn't great, business outlook survey isn't great, and and the Bank of Canada could could actually be cutting more or faster than than the than the Fed. So I, I'm bearish Canada. Uh, I don't think it's like a massive opportunity simply because of the entry point. Like at 134, I'm Canadian, and most of my life it's been between 100 and 140. So you know the the location is not like amazing for being short Canada, but I do think Canada weekends next year. So interesting. The loony, right? Um, really interesting. Um, we've had some people talking about Canada. They that very hard to change your demographic trajectory, but Canada did it. And it was immigration, yeah. immigration yeah. policy, folks, which we know is a hot topic here, but that's one way you change your declining death spiral of uh population. So um, something maybe Washington might want to think about. Okay, fantastic stuff, Brent. It is always so fun and great to catch up with you. You gave us a lot to chew on and think about as we head into 2024. So we love it. We can't wait to catch up with you on the other side of that. We'll see what happens with the BOJ. And remember, um, you can check out Brent's AM FX Daily Note and get a special RV member discount uh, using the code RV100. Head over to realvision.com forward slash Brent. Christopher told me his conversation with Roger, well, he didn't tell me, he told the chat, is coming out on Wednesday. I keep front running it, Christopher, because I can't wait to see it. So we're going to have to wait a couple more days, but it'll be out on Wednesday. Uh, and we, of course, will be back tomorrow, same time and throughout the day with some great programming. So head over to realvision.com. If you are not a member, sign up, everybody. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. <laughs>